Many medical devices are connected to other systems and are web-enabled, making them vulnerable to security and privacy threats. I'm Marianne Kolbasek McGee, Managing Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking to Bill Stewart, who is Privacy Officer and Product Security Officer at Philips Healthcare Sales and Services. Bill will be discussing with us the top privacy and cybersecurity threats facing medical devices and the steps being taken to address those issues. Hi, Bill. Hi, Marianne. Now, to start, what do you think are the top privacy and cybersecurity threats faced by medical devices and why? Well, a lot of the threats faced by medical devices are are no different than the threats faced by most people that use computers nowadays or technology um, some of the biggest threats, the things we worry about, are the, the unknowns, what is known as zero-day exploits, the things that nobody's seen before and haven't been identified yet. Um, but, again, that's no different than the, the concerns that you might have in your normal use of a PC or in the banking industry or any other industry. The other big threat, and it, it's unfortunate, but it's kind of cliche to say that uh, some of the biggest threats to uh, security come from internal threats inside an organization. It's not so much the... Uh, the malicious uh, software that, that reproduces itself automatically, but maybe a, a disgruntled employee or somebody who's intentionally trying to gain access to a system. And unfortunately, those are the toughest ones to prevent because some of those people have authorized access to the systems, so you can't uh, necessarily prevent those in advance. Now, you mentioned the insider threats with disgruntled employees. Elaborate, what sorts of threats do they pose? Well, the idea that somebody who has access to the system already, uh, in other words, we, we can do a pretty good job of preventing unauthorized access and making sure only the people with authorized access can get at the data. Uh, but if somebody's already got authorized access, then it's, it's much more difficult to prevent them from, from causing harm and damage. I guess that's the difference possibly between privacy concerns and security concerns. The cybersecurity concerns we feel a little more comfortable with because they're a little more predictable possibly but it's these unknown, intentional, malicious acts by people that have some access already. Those are possibly the, those are the ones that keep us up at night. So now what steps are you taking at Philips to address these threats? Well, again, similar to, to most people that work in the computer or tech industries, uh, we, we use all of the normal tools at our disposal. We are very adept at uh, hardware and software firewalls, uh, using industry standard malware protection that you might use on your own PC, for example. Uh, but we also try to go much deeper, obviously, depending on the device and the uh, the intended use of the device. We can be pretty severe in our system hardening. Obviously, if, if a medical device is running on a commercial operating system like Windows, it's vulnerable to a lot of malware and, and problems that people know about. But the good news is on a dedicated medical device, we don't necessarily need to use all the components of Windows that you might want on your laptop or your personal computer. We can shut down a lot of the services. We can close a lot of the ports. We can harden the system to a fairly extreme degree such that it's, it's fairly secure from the get-go. And then on top of that, we'll use the standard uh, firewalls, both hardware and software, malware protection, things like that. So we're, we're fairly comfortable we can, we can do a really good job on most medical devices. On the other hand, we have the disadvantage in that device availability is often the highest priority of our users. Some of our devices are used in life-giving uh, situations and emergency rooms and such, and you, you don't want a device that is so secure 
that you actually uh, prevent the doctor from getting access when he really needs it most. So there are some, uh, some things we have to take into consideration as well. So now what steps should healthcare organizations take to better protect medical devices used in their environments from cybersecurity and privacy threats? And for instance, should healthcare organizations be applying software patches and anti-malware software to medical devices? Well, healthcare organizations probably do a pretty good job. We we have uh, obviously close relationships with our customers, and uh, most of our customers do a very good job of protecting their networks and, and the, the normal things you would consider. When it comes to software patches, anti-malware software updates, obviously if the medical device is running on a commercial operating system and that the developer of the operating system is releasing security patches, then of course we would want to provide a mechanism for getting those patches onto the medical device as quickly and efficiently as possible. Now, in my own experience, there are there's such a wide gamut, such a wide variety of devices that sometimes that will mean the hospital themselves can apply the patches whenever they feel like it. it there's, there's really very little restrictions, and we encourage the IT departments to put a plan together and keep the devices updated as they would any other computing device on their network. However, there are medical devices which, for various reasons, we have decided we don't really want the hospital to be applying patches without our knowledge and authorization. In other words, if it's a particularly sensitive device for whatever reason, we've decided that maybe we should validate the patches before they're applied to the system. Mainly, it gets back to our obligations under the FDA and under other nations' regulatory guidelines that we have to ensure the safety and effectiveness of the device. And for some devices, the addition of a software patch is not considered necessarily a risk, but for other devices, it might be considered a risk. So there's a wide variety of of kind of rules and uh, guidelines for how and when and who can update and uh, patch these systems. The FDA recently issued several notices about medical device cybersecurity, including recommendations that device makers develop cybersecurity controls in the design phase of their product development. Now, in light of that, what sorts of cybersecurity controls do you think the medical device industry should consider for their products? Well, and, and this is interesting. This has been in the news a bit recently, and the, uh, the Medical Device Privacy Consortium, of which my company and many of our competitors are members, we have uh, provided feedback to the FDA. They've, they've issued some draft guidance, and we've provided our comments. And this is... Uh, publicly displayed on our, our website, the Medical Device Privacy Consortium website. And in general, we were fine with some of the guidelines that are being, being suggested. We had a few uh, nitpicky uh, comments about uh, changes we would make just for clarity. Some of, the, some of the guidelines were potentially ambiguous and a little confusing. But otherwise, in general, the industry is very happy with the guidelines. I can't think of anything that we would necessarily do new or different from what we've already been doing. Again, the, this, the, the cybersecurity threats, are there's nothing particularly new. Uh, this is something that the industry has been grappling with for, for many years now, and uh, we're always looking for ways to improve. But as far as the guidance go, it was mostly concerned with how do the manufacturers document their risk assessments and at what point and, and to what extent do they report that uh, information to the FDA. So I think there's still uh, some negotiating going on, some some back and forth about whether those, uh, how detailed those reports should be and whether it should be part of the uh, initial 510K application for a medical device or whether it's something that would be 
kept in the manufacturer's uh, design history file, which the FDA has the, the ability and the right to audit at any time. So most of the uh, discussion is more around the, uh, the paperwork and the reporting processes, not so much which uh, cybersecurity controls are being used. I think, in general, most of uh, my company and most of our competitors, we have a, a fair number of very techno-savvy uh, IT security people, and uh, we're, we're doing an awful lot in that area. So I don't think the FDA is suggesting anything new as far as different controls. It's mostly in the, in the report and what gets, uh, what gets reported to who and when. Now, as you know, many medical devices are web-enabled and mobile. What are some of the best practices that patients should consider to keep their medical device data private and secure? My background is mostly in what we call the, the heavy iron, the CAT scanners and MRI systems. I'm not as, uh, I don't spend as much of my time with the mobile devices, although those are obviously becoming more and more common. And it, it does pose some interesting new challenges. Mainly, uh, kind of the, the very silly one is that uh, something small that you can carry around is much more likely to get lost. You're, you're not going to lose a, a two-ton MRI magnet, but you might lose a, a, a monitor that's strapped to your belt or that you can carry around and uh, hold it around your neck at uh, any time. So, so um, again, that's a, kind of a silly example, but obviously uh, we we provide such devices with encryption. If there is sensitive data on those devices, the, the first level of defense would be good encryption. And I think most patients understand that and uh, are, are comfortable with that. I guess the other uh, piece of advice would just, and, and this is more on a day-to-day personal level, I suggest to people not to give up any more data than you have to. Uh, I know when I go to the doctor nowadays and they ask for my Social Security number, I, I don't provide it. I say, well, I'd, I'd rather not. Thank you very much. And so far, uh, that hasn't caused me any problems. Of course, someday if I'm in the emergency room and my appendix is about to burst and they want me to sign something, I'm, I'm probably going to sign it and provide them whatever information they need. But in general, minimizing the amount of data that is exposed at all is one of the first and best parts of your defense to, to keep the data protected. Finally, many medical device vendors are considered business associates under HIPAA Omnibus. What changes has Philips implemented to comply with HIPAA Omnibus? The, the new uh, HIPAA Omnibus regulations that have come into effect this year, the good news is for us at least, uh, most of the things that are in that uh, guidance and that, that Omnibus rule are things that we've known about for quite a while. We were, we were active participants in some of the high-tech discussions going on for several years, and, and so we, there's really not, not a whole lot that we would consider new, although, yes, the law is new. It, it did come into effect just this year. Um, the biggest impact on on me and my business personally, and for my company in, in North America, uh, we've uh, because of the HIPAA omnibus rule, we've gone back and reviewed all of our subcontractor agreements. There's there's specific uh, uh, new items in the HIPAA omnibus rule that talk about the medical device manufacturer's responsibility or business associates' responsibilities if and when they have subcontractors doing business for them. And obviously, we do. Most of the larger companies would probably have some contractors at some time doing business. Most of those uh, agreements are, have been reviewed. There wasn't a whole lot to change, but we do have to add uh, new language uh, that's in line with the omnibus rule. It's interesting. Uh, we, we have uh, literally thousands of subcontractors, but most of them are probably not uh, business associates. 
but there are some that do fall into that category, and some of them don't agree that they're business associates. So there's there's a little bit of discussion that goes on at at, at a at some point. However, we've we've realized that we can write our subcontractor agreements in such a way that even if the subcontractor doesn't want to admit that they are a, a subcontractor and a business associate under HIPAA, the contract can be written in such a way that that they're covered and that the, the, the contract is in compliance with the HIPAA omnibus rule. So that's been the biggest impact on us uh, specifically. Have you had to tweak any of the business associate agreements that you have with covered entities, and, and do you sign those? Well, covered entities, they're the customer and we're the, uh, we're the provider, so we tend to do what our customers want, at least we try to. And so many customers have chosen to update their HIPAA uh, business associate agreements with us, and usually we're more than happy to do that. It's really not an issue. Uh, obviously, we have our own boilerplate uh, HIPAA business associate agreement that's been blessed by our legal department, and we're happy to sign that anytime if the customer is comfortable with the language. But, of course, many customers have their own language, and, and we're happy to look at their language. And if we're, as long as there's nothing in there that, that is uh, problematic for us, we're happy to sign that. The, the only thing that would be problematic, sometimes hospitals will put into a business associate agreement things that don't really belong, at least in our opinion, and we will discuss it and say, well, that's really something that should be in the uh, purchase agreement, not necessarily the business associate agreement. And we've, we really don't have any problems with that, but it does require a little bit of discussion sometimes. What sorts of things do they try to put in the business associate agreement that you know, really doesn't belong? I don't want to imply that it, it's, it's a big problem. But I, I recall, and frankly, this was even before the omnibus uh, rule came out. This, this has been kind of a generic problem. Some hospitals or some healthcare providers will write a HIPAA business associate agreement that will include language about which antivirus software the product should be running, which version of the antivirus software the product should be running, and how frequently the updates can, should occur, and things like that. And we've, we may not even object to the technical content, but we'll say, well, this, this isn't really appropriate for a business associate agreement. The business associate agreement has very specific purpose under HIPAA, and this kind of product feature specification language is, is not the right place. This is not the right place to put that. Frankly, we've never, in the eight years I've been doing this job, I, I don't think we've ever had a customer where we couldn't sign a business associate agreement. So it, it's in, in practice, it's not an issue, but it, it does require a bit of review sometimes. Thanks, Bill. I've been speaking to Bill Stewart of Philips Healthcare. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.